Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very deserted Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Tamara Littleton. Tamara is the CEO and founder of The Social Element, a social media agency providing solutions to some of the world's largest brands. Um, Tamara, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you very much. Now, Tamara, first and foremost, this podcast is, of course, all about the topic of leadership. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Well, that's an interesting one and, and probably, you know, coming into itself more in while we're going through the uh, coronavirus, because I think uh, leadership is about defining the strategy, setting the vision. But also I see myself as the kind of custodian of the culture of my company. Absolutely. And um, good leadership is coming under the um, the microscope um, quite a lot recently. Um, every day at 5pm um, with the COVID-19 outbreak, we hear the Prime Minister or another Cabinet Minister announcing support for businesses, while at the same time preventing a great deal of businesses from performing their functions as well, it's important to remember. And that's that approach has come under quite a lot of scrutiny. Do you think that they're doing the right things at present? Yeah, well, I think um, because we do a lot of work in sort of crisis management for brands as well. And um, right now that uh, the routine, so having a, a daily briefing, even if there isn't much news to be shared, is so important. I think it makes people feel uh, comfortable that there is a certain amount of routine, that, that daily briefing. Um, I think it's all about getting the facts out there. Uh, at the beginning, um, it's... You know, perhaps there was a lot of confusion and, and facts and things were uh, not always straightforward. And again, with any crisis management, whether it's a brand or whether it's a, a global crisis, you have to have the facts uh, out there as well and trying to get rid of any um, false information flying around. And from then on, it's really about the communication style. And it's something that uh, I've been trying to be wary of uh, myself as a leader during these times that uh, You know, I have 300 people working in the agency and Mm. we have um, hundreds of clients that we work with. So we had to be clear with how we were dealing with things, uh, you know, making sure that everyone knew it was business as usual, but taking care of my staff and their health. Um, And I think it, it now comes down to a more compassionate style of leadership, understanding that we're all in this together. And perhaps now is not the time for sort of browbeating and show ponying. It's it's really about um, compassion and clear, really clear leadership. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, there, Tamara. Um, can you think of a time in your career when you've had to take decisions like this, or is this very much something that's new territory for you? It's interesting. I, I feel um, uh, crisis definitely brings people together. Um, it, it's something that it really does test all of your skills. Um, I would say there have been times in, I've been running the social element for 18 years now. And in that time, I mean, we started when, in fact, there was no social media. So starting a social media agency mm. when really there was no Facebook, Twitter or YouTube, it was uh, it was an interesting time. And we had to be very sort of entrepreneurial and educate the, uh, the industry. But in that time, we've also pivoted to various times and changed the shape of the agency from being perhaps more, uh, one that was focused on reputation and, and we started in the moderation space. So we've always worked with um, children's brands and protecting uh, children online. And in fact, I worked with an early government task force um, 
to try and protect children uh, on, on digital. But over the time, it's moved into more of a comms and marketing uh, agency. And so we've pivoted, we've changed skills, we've had to sort of adapt how we do things. So I, I kind of have the mantra that adapt or die, basically. And, mm. and I think that's what we're seeing very close up now is that there are lots of uh, companies that are having to change tactics and strategy very fast and in real time in order to survive. Um, as we're seeing, there's an incredible amount of creativity. People do change their business approach. And uh, I think um, that's what leaders have to do. Is you have to almost second-guess what might happen, but also have the ability and the mindset to change when things change out of your control. Certainly. And um, it's important to get that approach right, that balance between being proactive and having plans in place and being reactive, isn't it? Because um, it's definitely the ability to be reactive, not just roll with the punches, but essentially take decisions as guidelines change that is really proving important right now. Absolutely. And I think for us, uh, the fact that um, the 300 uh, strong team, we all uh, work remotely. There was only 20 of us going into an office in London, but we're all built from day one. To work from home and that has actually been an incredible uh, asset to us to be able to just not worry so much about the logistics of moving everybody home mm. uh, so that we could just adapt um, our sort of marketing approach our clients and, and be there for them very quickly so I think uh, having perhaps some foresight and having a different model was very uh, very helpful to us. Absolutely. And that need to change business model is something that has been there for quite some time. A lot of businesses have had to change direction even when there hasn't been a crisis as such. And it's the case yeah. with the social element as well, isn't it? Where, um, of course, there was one focus of the business and there have been changes in that strategy throughout um, time. Um, yeah. And leadership's the same, isn't it? There is kind of a journey of development that you go on there. And sometimes it is important to change direction. Um, with that in mind, Tamara, would you say that it's possible to be a good leader without getting some Something wrong perhaps and then having to learn from that and then change tact I think it's important to get things wrong <laughs> I try my hardest to get things wrong all the time um, I think you learn um, from your mistakes I think it's about creating an environment where it's okay to fail and it's okay to, um, to, to try something and then realize that actually that's not the best approach I think where companies become stagnant is if everyone is too frightened to test something um, and, and you see some great technical, you know, technology companies where their whole mantra is about, you know, test and learn. Um, so I very much agree with that. And, and in fact, I was lucky enough to be part of a government uh, uh, sponsored uh, event with London and Partners where I learned from some of the companies out in Silicon Valley. And mm. Google X particularly was very inspirational in terms of they have this thing where they sell you know, set kill criteria for projects. So they know that if it hasn't achieved something by a certain time or whatever criteria they set, they kill that project. And it takes the emotion away and it becomes almost like mm. um, we are embracing um, mistakes and failure, but it's all about being able to move on from that quickly and and changing you know strategy. If it's not working, change strategy, do something different, get on with it. And I think we're seeing perhaps the government reacting in that way, but definitely companies having to be proactive in their changing, but also realising if it doesn't work, change quickly again and don't, don't sort of dwell. 
Absolutely. And is that the sort of advice that if you could go back 10 years to yourself a decade ago, is that the sort of advice that you'd give yourself to embrace mistakes and really know how to sort of change direction going forward? Yes, uh, I think it would definitely be. I think we've always had a good culture about, you know, testing and and making mistakes, but I think um, perhaps faster. So um, Mm -hmm. making, you know, if it wasn't working, just make the decisions a little bit faster. But uh, I I think it's something that everyone can learn from. Absolutely. I can see where you're coming from there, certainly, Tamara. Um, So what sort of um, leadership figures have maybe been an influence or an inspiration to you over the years? Um, Or if not figures, maybe experiences that you've had? Of course. Well, I think right now, you know, leaders such as um, Bill Gates are showing the importance of of compassion and uh, and putting people first. Um, But then there have been people along the way like, you know, Karen Brady, uh, Oprah Winfrey. I, th- I think it, there aren't always that many female figures, so I'm always <laughs> wanting to champion uh, the sort of female entrepreneurial uh, role models. But uh, I, I think it's about finding your own way. What I would say is that perhaps COVID will um, bring a different style of leadership, perhaps more uh, vulnerable and, and compassionate style of leadership that perhaps the world needed. Absolutely. And um, would you champion that um, to the next generation of emerging leaders, um, but also champion the cause that there needs to be more women in their leadership roles? Because uh, let's be honest, I mean, they do, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, it really is a case to sort of stand up and be, be counted. But uh, I think role models can come from so many different places. And, and I, I see great collaboration at the moment. So it's about finding your own style, but also uh, you know going with your your own personality, that is your, your strength. You don't have to do things just like someone else. It's, you know, you can find your own style. And, uh, and, and I think something around purpose and values is so important for us as a social element that the company becomes a reflection of your founder's DNA. So it's important to be in touch with your own sort of purpose and your values as well. Yes, it's um, of huge importance, um, that uh, for sure. Um, I am conscious tomorrow of uh, running out of time, but before we do go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself and for the social element and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly through the COVID-19 outbreak and beyond the other side. Yes, of course. Well, I also have a a second company called Pulpio, which I co-founded back in 2013, which is very uh, important at the moment because it's all about crisis preparation so at the moment, I would say that um, we're, like everybody else, we're just trying to make sure we get through the next few months. We've adapted and we're supporting our clients. And some of our clients, given that they are big brands, uh, some of them have had to put uh, contracts on hold. Some of them have needed more support from us, uh, particularly in insights and, uh, and uh, creative work and uh, strategy as well. So we're being kept busy. I hope to continue to be kept busy. Um, and we are adapting as quickly as we can to, to help our clients. So really, for me, it's about hunkering down, uh, looking after my team, getting through this, and then uh, being stronger for our clients when we're all through this. Yes, um, I think every business has to uh, make sure that they're in that position. Um, and especially, it's going to be important to have a plan in place when we do come out of the other side of this so that business can hit the ground running and really help get that upward trajectory going in the economy sooner rather than later. 
Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have to say, Tamara, it's been um, very insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today. And uh, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on in a few months to look upon all of this retrospectively, see how it's all played out and really sort of examine that um, in a little bit more depth. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to the programme with me today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. Here it is now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, uh, he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? 
Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt, you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after, because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, I think it was the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. (laughs) And I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one, drawing that game at the Oval to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, 
you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, 
they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holy Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be 
the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death Mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.